And then you have President Biden, who comes out recently, uh, sir, at, at a press conference and said, they're not your children, they're all our children, which sounded like a very communist statement. So what when a president of a country says that to uh, citizens of a country like ours, America, um, how should parents be hearing that? Are we wrong to be concerned about those types of statements? Hey, Joyful Warriors, Tiffany Justice here, Moms for Liberty. So excited to have a gentleman joining us today, Kenneth Pope. And Kenneth is the CEO of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. You can find them at victimsofcommunism.org. And just to give you a, a little overview from the website, the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation is an educational, research, and human rights nonprofit organization devoted to commemorating the more than 100, millions, 100 million victims of communism around the world and to pursuing the freedom of those still living under totalitarian regimes. The foundation was authorized in 1993 by a unanimous act of Congress signed as public law by President William J. Clinton, Bill Clinton, on December 17, 1993. On June 12, 2007, President George Bush dedicated the Victims of Communism Memorial statue in Washington, D.C. So welcome, um, Kenneth, to the Joyful Warriors podcast. Um, please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work with Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Sure. Uh, well, again, thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a great joy to, uh, to be with you um, today and to talk about this topic. It's something I'm very passionate about. So how, how did I get involved with this? Uh, so my kind of my career has been bookended by, by the university system. So I was a, you know, obviously young man went to college. Uh, while I was in university, I started hearing things about, you know, communism. Actually, my degree was in the sociology of the Soviet Union. So I had this fascination with it during the Cold War. Um, but I was also in the, in the military. I was a lieutenant getting ready to go to my first assignment in Germany as I graduated college. But all through college, I heard this, you know, this continuing line about how, you know, communism is not that bad. The Soviet Union is not that bad. There is, they just haven't got it right yet. They just need some help, more time, and they can make this thing called communism work. And, you know, probably as a young, you know, not too intelligent college student at the time, probably, I, I believe some of that. But when I get to Germany, my very first tour is on the east-west German border, um, and I'm seeing this, this thing called this Iron Curtain, which everybody thinks is a metaphor to some degree, but it actually was a physical barrier that divided east and west Europe. So I get there and I see that, I'm going, well, if this system called communism is so great, why do they have to keep about 400 million people behind a fence? So that was kind of my first you know, rude introduction to communism. Then I went on to have a 23-year career in the military, you know, mainly in the armored reconnaissance business, special operations world, then as a, finally as a Russian foreign area officer. Um, so I got to travel and live in that part of the world, a couple assignments in Ukraine, Estonia, Azerbaijan. So I, I traveled, you know, extensively in that area. Um, when I retired, I worked in the consulting world for a while and then taught at the university level. And I noticed that as a professor, I'm talking about the Cold War one day in my class, very first semester I was teaching, probably two weeks in, and these kids have no idea what I'm talking about. And that just really bothered me. So I, I stopped, you know, what I was planning on teaching the next couple of weeks and focused on that. You know, what was this thing called communism all about? And why don't you know about it? And so when I did that for a couple of years, three years actually, and then when I, 
I had this opportunity to come up and work with Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, and I thought that's just like the kind of thing that's you know tailor made for me, my experience. So I said yes, and have really enjoyed the two years I've been here doing this job. Wonderful. So the president of uh, the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation is Ambassador Andrew Brenberg, and he was and and he served as a representative of the United States to the Office of the United Nations. Um, and other international organizations in Geneva. So how important to have both of you leading this organization um, who have direct experience with speaking with many victims of communism um, and really seeing the impact of communism, the long-lasting impacts of communism, even after a country is able to escape communism, how, how it so badly hurts and fractures the nation. Um, so on your website, um, you talk about your vision uh, at the foundation, a world free from the false hope of communism. And right now, our moms and dads have children. Many of them have children in public schools. And it has become increasingly evident that um, the schools are being used to turn the youth against family and against religion and against tradition. And so many of our moms are very concerned that communism has taken root here in America and that there's some promise of some better, um, better society through communism, but that has never been true. Has it? No society has ever um, had communism and the people have prospered underneath that type of government. No, the, the, really the only the only promise communism made that actually turned out to be true was they would make everybody equal. And they did. They made everybody equally poor, miserable and, and subject to this violent system called called communism. So you're right. It's never really worked anywhere. It's been tried. And they they always come in with these promises. And you, you kind of hit on a couple of key ones. And the, the promises are that we don't need things. We don't need God. We don't need religion. So they immediately try to destroy that. They want to destroy the family. They want to destroy that that relationship between the child and the parent, and, and they do that for a reason. Obviously, the youth are most susceptible to things that you know a, a figure in authority, you know, a teacher in this case, tells them at school, and they're also there with peers. So they have the the combination of peer pressure and what the teacher is, this person of authority is, is you know teaching them or, or preaching to them in a lot of cases, and they can turn against their parents. I mean, that's how the Soviet system did it. How China does it. If you look at all these different periods of their other thing, the uh, the Red Terror um, during Lenin's time, the uh, the Great Terror during Stalin's time, and Mao's Cultural Revolution, they weaponized children against their parents, and they were some of the worst abusers of both adults and, and the population with these with these kids, basically. And the worst, probably, example was in Cambodia during the Killing Fields. Teenagers were really the worst of the worst, and, and what these people had to face with, with these people who have no sense of moral you know, no moral compass, really, because it's been beaten out of them through the ideological process and the brainwashing at the schools. So, yeah, it is a concern. I mean, we, you know, the students should be in, in class to learn um, things that are going to help them mature as productive citizens in the nation, not, you know, being told, you know, not what to think, but how to think and let them make up their own minds about the things that they see in the world as it, as it applies to them. So, I saw a meme the other day and it was making fun of, of concerned parents and it was saying, everything I don't like is communism. It was ha ha, so funny. But moms and dads, there's a certain amount of gaslighting going on because we're seeing evidence of, of things that have happened in history happening in our country. Um, 
a, a wedge being driven between the parent and the child, uh, the sexualization of children at younger and younger ages, blurring the boundary between adult and child, um, graphic content, uh, cannibalism, suicide, uh, being injected uh, into our children's education. Um, and then you have President Biden, who comes out recently, uh, sir, at, at a press conference and said, they're not your children, they're all our children, which sounded like a very communist statement. So what when a president of a country says that to uh, citizens of a country like ours, America, um, how should parents be hearing that? Are we wrong to be concerned about those types of statements? Well, I think not. So what, you know, what I kind of talk when, I, when I'm speaking to different groups and, you know, students, teachers, parents, or, you know, just talks I'm giving, you know, across the country and around the world now is, you know, it's, you know, I, what I try to do is compare, give them an example when I, when I come in to give a talk. I said, this is, I'm going to talk about a series of things that were said and done in the past. And you have to ask yourself, if, does any of this sound familiar? And if so, why does it sound familiar? And if it does sound familiar and we're taking some of the same steps that the organizations or, or nations did in the past, why do we as Americans think that we're going to get a better result? You know, I, I tell people, too, that, you know, we Americans are, you know, are kind of very arrogant. We tend to think that we can take something that's failed everywhere it's been tried. And because we're Americans, we can whip it into shape and make it make it work for us. And it never works that way. You know, if you look back in you know, 1918, uh, the same thing they were saying back then. So you will recognize some of the themes. One of the guys, the deputy um, director of the Cheka, the precursor to the KGB, made this comment, which was, when you're looking at these people, don't look for evidence of a crime. Only thing you should be asking is, what class do they belong to? Are they the oppressor or the oppressed? And that alone should determine their fate. And people were executed in mass based on not what they did, but who they were. And if you look at how we kind of were, you know, slicing and dicing our segments of our population today, you have to wonder, why are we doing that? What's the, what's the reason behind the fact that we are going to say that some group, by virtue of how they look, you know, need to be treated a certain way? And all the other things, too, that we talked about. It, it's just one example, but it all goes, it, it follows along the same way. Yep. So um, James Lindsay, who's on our advisory board, uh, a gentleman who uh, speaks a lot about Marxism um, and has written Race Marxism uh, and also studied Ferrari and wrote uh, The Marxification of Education, um, has uh, said that Mao said that um, he, in, in, uh, during the Cultural Revolution, those, that was a, a Cultural Revolution with uh, Lenin uh, and Marx influences, right? Um, and then in America, uh, we have a cultural revolution with American characteristics. So it, the Marxism really looks for the weakness points, I would imagine. And as you've said, the different identity politics, the way that people can be separated. And we're seeing that with our children, with certain you know, children being separated by race or being separated by um, you know, sexual orientation. Um, and so not necessarily the same as Marx in that the class warfare, as you just mentioned, but um, certainly through these other different types of identity politics. But in America, where you do have such a melting pot, where we have so many um, interracial relationships, right? Black and white people coming together and getting married and having children and people who are straight having gay children or gay, children, gay people adopting straight. What happens in the fabric of our country now? Because it's not easy to separate people based on 
what you would normally in, in, uh, in other countries have more easily been able to separate people, I would imagine. Well, I, I think that's, that's a part of it. What, one thing I'd always kind of go back to is, you know, all these systems of, you know, especially a communist system, I call them a system of rule because it really wasn't a government that, you know, the people had any voice in. So what, what these systems always tried to do was, again, was, was, was to divide, pick out, pick the reason why, and let's go with it. And what, what they always, they always seem to fall back on is this. They know that if, if, a, if the country or the organization is segmented, it's not going to be unitary and it's not going to be able to defend itself very well. So there's, there's a rationale behind that. I mean, it's divide and conquer. If you look back at the, uh, at the old Soviet era, the, the interesting thing about, you know, one of the key leaders that we all remember the name, Stalin, his first job under Lenin was, was he was in charge of the nationality question. And he pitted people against each other across the Soviet Union. If you look at some of these uh, different problems they have in the different uh, former republics now, Azerbaijan, Armenia, constantly at war, they literally took segments of population and intermixed them within those two countries. And they perpetuate this ongoing crisis where, you know, a, a country, the Soviet Union at the time and now Russia, is going to be the only one that can solve that problem. So that's what you know, we have in situations like this. You create a problem where, guess what? The only person who can solve that is going to be the people at the top, the people running the country, the government of that country. And again, that's why I always go back to this. If this stuff is sounding familiar, you know, we have to ask ourselves why. And then what do we do about it? Do we stand up against it or do we just let it continue to roll? And, and we have some of the results that we're having now. A very, very divided country. A very divided country, you're right. And moms and dads are very concerned about it. Parents are very concerned about it. I think Thomas Paine said, if there is trouble, let it be in my days so that my children can live in peace. Right. But Americans are increasingly seeing trouble being fomented in, in our country. And we really fear for what the lives of our children will look like. Um, on the website, you talk about more than 1 billion people who are currently under socialist or communist regimes. Um, China, Cuba, Laos, uh, North Korea, North Korea, Vietnam, and now Venezuela. Um, I did an interview with a woman from Venezuela, and she said when she started hearing about the baby food shortages, uh, she cried because she felt that uh, it, she was seeing what had happened in Venezuela just 20 years ago, 15 years ago, happening in America now. Can you talk a little bit about um, how we see communism and socialism still existing across the globe and what it looks like for those people? Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's it's quite sad, quite horrifying in some cases. You know, we'll, we'll go with the biggest offender, China, 1.4 you know billion people living under this system known as communism. And you look at all the all the atrocities that, that that government is doing against its own people. You think we've heard about the Uyghurs and what they're doing with the Uyghur population. You know, it's a small, you know, ethnic you know population in the uh, in the western part of the nation, uh, Muslim. And they are putting them in basically in concentration camps. They're re-educating them. They're sterilizing the women, sterilizing the men. They have uh, done forced organ harvesting, basically death by organ harvesting. And we had some, our, our research team is heavily involved with that that does China studies. And you know, one of the, the really horrible things is, you know, in our country, you have to schedule your organ transplant. So think about this. In China, that's the only country on the planet that I'm aware of, and we're still digging into the details of this, where if you have enough money, you can schedule your organ transplant. So think about what that means. That's a government that's willing to do that to certain segments of, of their people. And one of the great myths about communism is, 
well, if they really have this you know, harmony among, among the races. They really don't. I mean, this, this country is going after a minority very hard to make them look like everybody else. And if they can't, then they get rid of them to the best they can. Same thing all over the world. You know, Venezuela is another classic example. A land really of plenty is one of the wealthiest nations in our hemisphere. I think it's probably fourth um, at one time until you know, Chavez and, and Maduro became in charge of the nation, brought in socialism, and now teetering toward totalitarianism and communism. And we get, we get the results. A wealthy nation, now people are hungry. They, they have one of the most oil-rich nations on the planet, and yet their people are hungry. And we have a lot of great witnesses that work for us here um, that just are from that nation. And they tell of the sad story about how wealthy their families were, relatively speaking, you know, enjoying the, the finer things in life as a norm across society. And now it's abject poverty pretty much everywhere you look. So talk to us a little bit about Venezuela and how a country that was so prosperous, that was doing well for the most part, that had a thriving middle class, how did they, why was socialism able to take root in the way that it was? Well, you, I mean, it's a lot of these, and we see it in our country too, so you have this back and forth. You have a, a certain party in power, they bring in certain policies, and sometimes they run into uh, to problems that doesn't work out the way they want to. Same thing in, in Venezuela. And they kept having this, and you have this very populist message that resonates with people. Let me, we're going to give you everything free, right? We're going to give you free food. We're going to give you free health care. We're going to give you kids free education. It's going to be just like they promised all over the world, this socialist or communist utopia where everything is wonderful. And what they always bring is what we always see, which is you know poverty, repression, misery, and, and death. Um, we have a, one of our witnesses, a guy who talks with quite a bit, David Smolansky. Um, Smolansky obviously is not a Venezuelan last name. His family uh, are what I like to call four-time losers. They were family-owned a, a, a timber industry in Tsarist Russia that Lenin nationalized ex and exiled them. They weren't fortunate enough to be exiled to Cuba. So they recover in Cuba, create this you know, cotton empire, and are now cotton farmers and doing textile. Castro takes over, and now they have come to the point where they have to exile, be exiled again. They flee to Venezuela, and then they go through this again. My friend David became a, you know, a mayor of one of the suburbs in, in, in Caracas, and he had to flee because he had a price on his head. He walked out of Venezuela through Colombia through the jungle, dressed as disguised as a priest to get out of the country, and now he's here working with us. And I always tell people, we always kind of joke about it, that I'm afraid that David's here now, that his family's track record with, with communism seems to bring it everywhere they go. So he's here, but I'm kind of concerned. Your poor friend. Yes, that yes. is horrible. Yes. Um, thank you for answering that. Uh, has Hungary, you and I spoke a little bit about Hungary and, and, and communism in Hungary that took root for about four years, I believe. Um, there's oftentimes... D discussion about the demoralization of the youth, the sexualization of the youth that happened during that time. Can you give us any other insight? Have there been times when people have been able to fight back against communism successfully? And, and what were some of the things that were happening uh, that allowed for that to happen? Yeah, well, I think if you look at the collapse of the Soviet Union and then, you know, with, within its own, its own former republics, all the, the 15 nations that made up the, the former Soviet Union, but also Eastern and Western Europe, you know, I think after, you know, especially internally after 70 years of this brutality with over 20 some million dead, murdered basically by the regime, 
that, that the people had had enough. The thing, the the rot was so bad that nobody believed the lie anymore. The lie was everything works. You know, you're hungry, well, you're actually full. You uh, you're poor, well, actually, you have quite a bit of wealth because you're in this you know communist paradise. But the lies no longer worked anymore. And then you get a leader who was a weak leader came in. You know, Gorbachev. You know, tried to kind of inch his way toward a better form of communism that just didn't work. The people had had enough, and when they saw the crack in the door, they all went for it. And unlike his predecessors, Gorbachev wasn't willing to do what they would have done, which is kill their way to a solution. Um, he didn't do that, so it collapsed. It started also in the uh, in the former Eastern Bloc countries. You know, East Germany, Hungary, for example, they were allowed to to go out once again. Once that cracks. It, was, it created this avalanche. They, the people had been beaten down so much that they had had enough. And after, you know, in your Eastern European case, after 50 years or so of this, they had finally were able to break free of it. And, you know, a lot of these countries are really doing well now. I mean, they've really, you know, reversed it. So, again, as we started this interview, I said there are a lot of people that would like to call us crazy, call me crazy for talking about communism as much as I do and for drawing parallels in history to what we're seeing in America right now. Um, I, I'm going to tell you, the, I, I don't know if you know, but the head of the American Library Association is a woman named Emily Drabinsky. Emily is a, a self-proclaimed Marxist. Um, when she was elected to be president, she said, I can't believe that, uh, that, a, a, self, uh, that a self-proclaimed Marxist lesbian is now the head of the American Library Association. Now, I could care less about her sexual orientation. She's an adult and should do whatever she likes as long as she doesn't harm other people uh, and children, right? Um, But the Marxist part, kind of concerning to me. And then I found out recently that she's actually the keynote speaker um, at the 2023 Socialism Conference that is happening here in America. Um, And... That's very concerning. So can we talk a little bit, if you could tell us about the Communist Party of America, a little bit of history about that. And then, you know, it doesn't seem like our government is very concerned about socialism and the uprise of socialism and, and, and elected leaders like AOC and others talking about so- socialism. Why is our government not concerned? Well, I, I think... I think in a lot of cases at the political level, I mean, I think these people are, are very busy, whether they're busy with productive things all the time is another question. But I, I think their their focus is so bifurcated and, and just drawn in so many directions, I don't think they pay attention to it. And plus, they're always re- you know, really focused on re-election. I, I think a lot of it is they don't understand. It's like the students today. They, they've forgotten what it is all about. And, but I think the people like this librarian and other people who are, are say they are self-professed, you know, professing Marxists, I, I think they actually believe what they're talking about. And either they're ignorant or don't want to understand, you know, where this always goes. So it also it always starts kind of at the slow bubble of some of the things that we see now, right? So you talk about, you know, people, you're being you're being shunned. The thing about the cancel culture, right? So your the first step is, well, that person doesn't agree with what I do, so I want to, I'm not gonna to talk to him, I don't want to hear him, I'll shout him down censor them. And then it becomes, well, I want him to lose his job now, or I want her to, you know, not only not have a job, but I want their bank accounts and everything frozen. Some of the things you're seeing like that now. So we we see all those things in the early stages, exactly the way it played out in in the Soviet era too. They didn't start off with mass murder right away, immediately. They did have killings right away, obviously, but they didn't, you know, perfect it into a mass murder machine, which they eventually got to. So when you see those things, why do we think, again, why do we think that this is going to end any different? 
and always the people like this lady, the librarian, she, I think she would be, it would do her well to go back and do some research. And you look at what always happens to the people who are at the top associated with the leadership. If you go back to 1934, the 17th Party Congress of, of the Soviet Union, what happened to them? The top 2,000 communist members in the country, the elite of the elite, right? 50% were executed that year because they were viewed a threat to Stalin, the guy in charge, because it always devolves to that one person at the top. And then the 139 people at the very top, the cream of the crop, 70% of those people were executed that year. So, so if you think because you're part of the cancel culture and you like it because you're, your side's winning at the moment and you think that's going to continue that way, then you need to do a good deep dive into history because you're going to find that everywhere this happened, cultural revolution, two million people that Mao killed because he felt threatened. So I'm going to put out a little challenge to Emily. Emily, if you're listening to this podcast or if someone is listening uh, and get, get this podcast to you, I'd like to meet you in Washington, D.C. And we can go and tour the Victims of Communism Museum uh, that is there. Uh, perhaps Mr. Pope will join us and give us a guided tour. And we can take a little walk down memory lane about where socialism and communism has taken many uh, lives, millions and millions and millions of lives, uh, in the history of the world. And then perhaps she won't be so glib to just, you know, support Marxism and communism and socialism in the way uh, that she is. If anyone is able to help us to get to the socialism conference or can record uh, Emily's keynote, we'd also really love to see that. You can uh, send it uh, directly to Moms for Liberty. Um, so Kenneth, before we stop today, because you've been so kind with your time, I know that the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation has a number of different types of outreach that you do. And I just want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about the curriculum that you have and some of the seminars and projects that you all are working on. And, and as well, I uh, would love to hear a little bit about that museum so I can get uh, others like Emily excited for our tour. Okay, great. So let's let's start with the museum. That's easy. So we opened in June of last year. So we've only been here about uh, about seven to eight months now. It's a uh, I'm sorry about a year now almost. It's losing track of time. Um, it's a uh, it's a it's a small museum, but it's a very impactful museum. We start with the very basics. You know, we focus on the numbers of victims killed by these regimes, and then the number of people who are still suffering under these regimes. And we start with the foundation. We talk about Marx, how it all got started, how it transitioned from this ideology system of rule into Lenin and then how he took it with the Bolshevik Revolution that was really kind of misnamed. It's really a coup, top-down coup. It wasn't a groundswell from the bottom up like so many people you know, mischaracterize the history of it. And so we go from Lenin and, and you know, Gallery 1 talking about the revolution. Gallery 2, you transition to the repression, which is what follows every single time this place is done. And we talk about the gulag system and the, the various you know, mass murders they did. Think of the cotton forest or the Holodomor in Ukraine, where they starved to death by design, you know, six to 10 million people. And then in Gallery 3, we transitioned to resistance because not everybody just, you know, folded and accepted this. They fought. They fought both, you know, actively with weapons, um, during, in, especially in the Baltic states, Poland, for example, other places. Um, but then they also just did the, the, the dissident movement and how they, you know, they worked hard to fight and defeat communism, which is what we talked about a little bit earlier. Where did it end? those Eastern European countries where they really stood against it. And then upstairs, we have a temporary space. So we, so, you know, organizations, we're gonna have a, like a laundry list of different organizations and groups and countries that are bringing in a temporary exhibit. We had Tenement Square. We have a Cuba prison system in, in place now. And next one, we're gonna have a Vaclav Havel, 
one of the key dissonants that we, we want to highlight next. And then we're going to have the Hall of Demore because we're coming up on the anniversary of that one starting in, in this fall. So that's the museum. We also have a number of education programs where we're starting to roll out our new curriculum that is basically like high school level. And it's written a little bit differently. It's a web-based product that's going to be reside online totally. And it starts off with a story. We want to capture the student's attention, um, but we also want to make it usable for teachers. So we'll talk about that too. So story, then you get into an essay that's peer-reviewed, but also written down so that the high school level targeted 10th grader can take a look at this and understand it. We provide, you know, you know, exquisite list of sources about how we came to those conclusions in the essay. We're reporting history. And then we also we have a, a series of exercises and, and things that teachers can use in a classroom. And then we also have things they can watch short video because students today, let's face it, they they're on their phones a lot. These short videos to, all the way to feature length movies they can look at. We have podcasts and we have a reading section where recommended pieces of literature or bios or history about the topic. So that's that's the curriculum and it's plug and play. So it's 33 chapters when it, when it's all said and done. So a teacher may not want to use it all the way through so they can take I want to do one on Lenin or I want to do one on Marx or Stalin. They can bring those into their thing and they can in, in their curriculum or their uh, schedule for the year and use it that way. So that's that's a curriculum. We also do a number of speaking engagements, both myself. Uh, you mentioned Ambassador Brimberg, he and I kind of tag team go out to different locations. Um, we also have your academic director, our speakers bureau. We have a number of top-notch you know, intellectuals that talk on the topic. It's on our website too. Just go to speakers bureau and you can schedule with one of those folks. Um, we have witnesses that people who actually suffered under this thing called communism, and they are able to come to your school, come to your groups and talk. And usually we pair them with me. And the one initiative down in Florida, your state, is I'm doing a series of, uh, of five seminars with two witnesses, each one. Um, across um, the state of Florida this summer, June and July. So there's some dates that we'll, we'll post when we, once we get all the details finalized and put that on our website and you can see it. But it's, it's open to teachers and I think they pay the teachers to come to it. So we're expecting probably 700 teachers per event and we would love to see everybody there. So please come and we can, we'll talk about, you know, this aspect, a kind of a real look at the history of communism and then if you want to argue with me academically, then I'll bring up my two witnesses who can tell you what it's like to live in the killing fields of Cambodia or Davis Milansky, what it's like to have to walk out of your country because your government's trying to kill you because you, you made a dis dissenting point of view. Oh, well, look at that, Emily. More options, more great things that you could come attend with me to learn more about why being a Marxist isn't a great idea. Um, so that's wonderful. So uh, we, you and I spoke briefly. We're going to try to maybe uh, get something on the calendar for moms when you do that tour. But for our chapters around the country, please go to the website and perhaps there are speakers and other people that you could have come to chapter meetings uh, to, to give a presentation uh, to your chapters. Um, Kenneth, if a superintendent uh, of, of education in a state is listening now, um, how can they get in touch with you? Because I have a feeling that there are other superintendents around the country uh, that would like to bring this type of uh, anti-communist education uh, to their state. Sure, just just go to our website. There's a there's an inf information account that they send people send queries in, and we'll it'll go to the appropriate person on on staff to answer. And then you can just you know ask for my name, and I'll I'll eventually I can respond to you too. I won't be as quick as my academic director because I've got <laughs> several other things I'm, I'm working on, but you know, we'll get back, somebody will get back to you in, in a very quick, you know, quick turnaround. 
And we want to do that. So we want to come out and talk to uh, different groups and support you because this is important. This is, you know, we're talking about the education of our children and that's, that's hugely important. I'm a father of three. Um, they got through the, you know, a mix of homeschooling, public schooling, and they, they're all functional adults. Thank, thank goodness. And uh, we're, we want to help do the same thing across the, across the country. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. So if you're asking yourself, when is the time to take a stand? The time is now. This just will not get easier. It will not be easier to stand up against socialism and communism in our country. And I don't know, uh, James says often, if there will be gulags, but they certainly will make it increasingly difficult for you uh, to do what it is you want to do and easier for you to do what it is they want you to do. Um, and one of those things is feed your family. To be honest, uh, when we look at uh, the atrocities of communism, oftentimes it is a very horrific and slow death. Um, and uh, Americans, uh, it's time to wake up and to recognize that our country is young and that we must fight to protect our freedom and our liberty. And that's certainly what our moms and dads across the country are doing. Uh, Ken, so thank you so much for joining us on the Joyful Warrior podcast. I have no doubt our chapters are going to be very interested to engage with you. And I can't wait for my phone to ring so that Emily and I can come on a field trip uh, to your museum and learn more uh, about the history of communism. We'd love to have you both there. Thank you so much for having me on today. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir.